Hello and welcome to the Nightcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am your host Jeff, better known as Billy Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Four Clinton. Welcome to the 135th episode of the Nightcast titled The Dark Knight Part 1, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Catelyn 7 in which Catelyn Stark deals with the apparent deaths of her younger sons by talking to a sympathetic friend, Jamie Lannister? Wait, do I have that right? Did I write that synopsis? Did you write that synopsis right? That part right? It gives me no pleasure to say this, but Jeff is right. <sighs> yes. I'll never live it down. At long last... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for validating me sir (laughs) anytime (laughs) yes so as always this episode is brought to you by our not a small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester tim bob troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards lord commander of the king's guard mark n lord travis master of ships and word of the waves captain of the war galley night wolf the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the valyrian steel summoner the blade that brings the deep ones sir keith j master whispers lord philip the merciful master of laws Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, the Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assisted, Two, the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Gracious High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper, the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, War of the East, Mistress of Old, Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcidelka, Low Energy Gent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies, and Gentle Thems. Haldover, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Quarian, the First of Redame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Award, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Greek, Game of Thrones, Portions of the Rum, Lady Reels, Seven Kings, Blender Pates, and Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count vote, votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Dick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Breach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, and our newest member of the Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times. Thank you to all of our counselors, and welcome to Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times. I love that. That's a really, really good name, don't you think? That is a perfect title. Love saying it out loud. Blackberry the Bold, Champion of Feel Good Times. We all should aspire to that title. And thank you so much, as always, to all our counselors. 
Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsome Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir David H., a sworn sword patron who asks, Emmett, oh, that's me. Since George is rewriting and tweaking some older chapters, does this change your Eldritch Apocalypse theory at all? What a wonderful question. The answer is no. Moving on. <laughs> no, obviously, look, the, the sample chapters from TWOW, the released chapters, whatever you want to call them, they're technically non-canonical. I think we all know that. Like, George mm-hmm. retain, you know, retains the right to mess with that stuff as, as much as he pleases. I think... I think the general framework of any chapter he's brought to bear with an audience is probably not going to be altered too much. I say that, but again, you know, he's 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 proven willing to to write and rewrite every single corner of the story multiple times. But I I, I have difficulty imagining a rewrite of the Forsaken that would completely change Euron's trajectory as a character. I you know I think he'd also have to go back and rewrite a Feast for Crows, really. And uh, you know it would be like. You know, rewriting Theon's wins chapter so Stannis dies at the end, or you know that there's no sure. birds talking. Like it's a, a complete alteration. I don't think that's in the works for those chapters. I think some stuff might get shuffled off into another chapter, or scenes from another chapter gets put into this one. Or I'm going to change this dialogue around, or oh, this character revealed something I don't want revealed yet, so that's going to come up later. I think those are the kind of changes that are probably in the works. But I cheerfully admit to being biased. What do you think, <laughs> sir? I think. Yeah, so I, I actually don't think that the uh, the rewriting is actually going to impact the Eldritch Apocalypse theory at all. Um, if anything, so so here's here's the interesting data point. So we know that George, back in August, was writing Samuel, and this is the first time he confirmed that he was writing Samuel chapters for the Winds Winter. And I would I would guess this is just be just spitballing here that George hasn't touched a Sam chapter in about fifteen years since he was writing a Feast for Crows. <laughs> like he has not like written a single word about Samuel Tarley since like two thousand four, two thousand five, when he was writing those those chapters in Bravos and Old Town. So now he's back at doing this again after he's written the Forsaken, after he's written all of Victorian's chapters from A Dance with Dragons, after he's written God knows how much. He did notice that he did write that this is a very big book, not this will become a very big book. So you have to imagine that George is very, hopefully, God. God, I hope he's very far along in the process. That as he's going now and he's writing these Samuel chapters set in Old Town, he said he's been, in the post that came up yesterday, not about, he said he's been to Old Town a time or three, which most likely indicates that he's still working on Samuel chapters, in my opinion. Maybe Aaron Dampere chapters. Maybe. I don't see how he makes it out of Dampere too, but you know how it goes with these things. Um, <laughs> that, I, that he's looking at some of the stuff he's writing about Old Town. He's been like, okay, so I need to add a little bit more detail in some of the imagery that's going to influence what's going to happen in these later Samuel chapters, what Samuel's going to see. Mm-hmm. Maybe he maybe he was listening to our, our patron forsaken episode. He's, oh, of course. course. George, George is one of our patron as episode, patrons. Mm-hmm. Yes. As, as he does, you know, every, every single month, he, you know, sends us a message to me like, hey, you got that one right, guys. I'm, I'm kidding. He doesn't do that. But does he? Um, I, that he could be like, you know, I love that point you were making from our, our final episode about there being the... Uh, the waves coming in, but there'd be no wind or something like that uh, at, at Old Town. That sure, someone might sure. see something, observe <laughs> something <laughs> like that. And uh, George might be being like, hey, that's a really good idea. So I need to like bring about how, you know, the waves are like flowing without the wind or something like that. And some of Dampere's, you know, tr- prophetic imagery. 
So he did talk about he was tweaking multiple chapters. It wasn't just the potential Forsaken chapter. I, I think he's probably tweaking uh, Arya's Mercy chapter from, from the Winds of Winter. Uh, he said one of the chapters he's tweaking is very old, and, Ar- and Arya's Mercy chapter was written like in 2001. That's when the first draft came up. So I imagine that's one of the ones he's tweaking yet again for like the 200th time. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens when it comes to all of these different tweakings and rewritings that George is doing as he ends up getting closer and closer to the finish line for the Winds of Winter. But... I don't know about you folks, but for me, I'm, I'm actually feeling relatively positive about all of the stuff that George is talking about for the Winds of Winter recently. For the first time, he's inching closer towards completion, and I guess we'll have to see. And I guess that confirms my theory that the Winds of Winter is coming out next week or the week thereafter. I think, yeah, the, the finish line is, is, you know, in sight in the way that, you know, a hill just, just before the horizon is in sight. You know, I think George has, has a fair amount of work to do, but I think he's feeling good about it, which is always positive. So mm-hmm. I'm happy about that. And if he has to change everything about Euron to get there, then he absolutely should. And you can <laughs> quote me on that. So thank you, Sir David, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron, where you can get show over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F. Slash Nauticast A-S-O-A-I-F, let me correct myself, <laughs> where you can get show notes, bonus posts, and bonus episodes. And speaking of those bonus episodes, we're excited to announce today that our next Patreon bonus episode will be all about how Mance Raider wrote the pink letter. Wait a minute. Is, did you read that You right? heard me, Jeff. <laughs> I never take anything back, as I just said. No, of course, I'm just teasing. It'll be all about why Ramsey wrote the pink letter and why none of the other candidates quite make sense. I'm really looking forward to that because I was getting a little bit worried here that I would have to like, you know, write about Mance Raider writing the pink letter and why that's the correct interpretation, which it absolutely is not. But yes, our episode about the pink letter will be out for all of our poor fellow and above patrons over at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF on Thanksgiving week. So check out that website. It's great. And our patrons are all amazing people. Most of them, anyways. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Catelyn of House did only one thing wrong. She had witnessed Tully victory against Tywin Lannister. Let's see how that all turns to ashes in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7, Part 1. The Great Hall of River Run was a lonely place for two to sit to supper. Deep shadows draped the walls. One of the torches had guttered out, leaving only three. Catelyn sat staring into her wine goblet. The vintage tasted thin and sour on her tongue. Brienne was across from her. Between them, her father's high seat was as empty as the rest of the hall. Even the servants were gone. She had given them leave to join the celebration. In other words, it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. Yeah, this chapter, guys, not uplifting. The thick walls can't keep out all the noise of celebration, however, as all the small folk outside were drinking tons of beer brought out to celebrate Edmure's victorious, soon to be returned, and Rob's victory at the crag but Catelyn can't join the celebration. She also can't blame them for celebrating either. They do not know. And if they did, why should they care? They never knew my sons. Never watched Bran climb with their hearts in their throats, pride and terror so mingled they seemed as one. Never heard him laugh, never smiled to see Rickon trying so fiercely to be like his older brothers. She stared at the supper set before her, trout wrapped in bacon, salad of turnip greens, and red fennel and sweet grass, peas and onions and hot bread. Brienne was eating methodically as if supper were another chore to be accomplished. I have become a sour woman, Catelyn thought. I take no joy in meat or mead, and song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. I am a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There is an empty place within me where my heart once was. Again, though Catelyn is not alone, totally. 
Brienne is with her. So Catelyn tells Brienne that if Sir Milady would like to go join the celebration, go for it. Catelyn's just an up for it tonight. But Brienne's also not in a celebratory mood. She would go if Catelyn commanded it, of course, but Cat's not commanding it. She just thinks that Brienne might be happier to be there than with her. But Brienne is quite content to be here. Maybe. But would Brienne be happier? Perhaps not, given the news that Catelyn is about to share. You see, Catelyn got a bird. Maester Vyman woke her up because it was his duty, but it was not a kind act. She and Vyman were the only ones who knew. Is it news of King's Landing? asked Brienne. Would that it was. The bird came from Castle Serwyn from Sir Roderick McCastellan. Dark wings, dark words. He has gathered what power he could and is marching on Winterfell to take his castle back. How unimportant all that sounded now. But he said, he, he wrote, he, he told me he... When Catelyn tried to speak, the words caught on her throat. I have no sons but Rob, she managed. Those terrible words without a sob, and for that much, she was glad. Brienne is horrified, and Catelyn says that Bran and Rickon were taken prisoner at a mill, murdered, and then their heads were mounted on the walls of Winterfell. She asks that the gods forgive her for even saying the words as Brienne reaches across the table. Her fingers stop, though. I, I, I have no words, my lady. My, my good lady, your sons, they're, they, they're with the gods now. Are they? Catelyn said sharply. What gods would let this happen? Rickon was only a baby. How could he deserve such a death? And Bran, when I left the North, he had not opened his eyes since his fall. I had to go before he woke. Now I can never return to him or hear him laugh again. She showed Brienne her palms, her fingers. These scars. They sent a man to cut Bran's throat as he lay sleeping. He would have died then, and me with him. But Bran's wolf tore out the man's throat. That gave her a moment's pause. I suppose the un killed the wolves too? He must have. Elsewise, I was certain the boys would be safe as so long as the Daryls were with them. Like Rob with his gray wind. But my daughters have no wolves now. Brienne starts to ask about Catelyn's daughters, but then Catelyn starts reminiscing about them. Sansa loved her nightly tales, and she would grow up to be more beautiful than Catelyn was. She had auburn hair that Catelyn loved to brush. Arya, though, people always thought she was the stable boy, and she loved scabs and always said what she was thinking and what the first thing that came into her head. And she was probably dead, too. When she said that, it felt as though a giant hand were squeezing her chest. I, I want them all dead, Brienne. Theon Greyjoy first, then Jamie Lannister and the Cersei and the Imp. Everyone. Everyone. But my girls, my girls will. The Queen? She, she has a little girl of her own, Brienne said awkwardly. And, and sons, too, of an age with yours. When she hears, perhaps she, she may take pity and send my daughters back unharmed. Catelyn smiled sadly. There's a sweet innocence about you, child. I, I could wish, but no. Rob will avenge his brothers. Ice can kill as dead as fire. Ice was Ned's great sword. Valyrian steel marked with the ripples of a thousand foldings so sharp I fear to touch it. Rob's blade is dull as a cudgel compared to ice. It will not be easy for him to get Theon's head off, I fear. The Starks do not use headsmen. Ned always said that a man who passes the sentence should swing the blade, though he never took any joy in the duty. But I would. Oh, yes. She stared her scarred hands, opened and closed, and then slowly raised her eyes. I've sent him wine. Confused, Brienne asks who the wine is for. Rob? Theon? No, it's for the Kingslayer. Catelyn hopes that she can do a rerun of when she sent wine to Cleos Frey. Catelyn wants Brienne to, to accompany her after she finishes eating. Come at midnight. Why so late? Because the hours run together in the dark, windowless dungeons. With that, Catelyn departs, passing by revelers, calling out for Tully and for the brave Lord Edmure. My, my father is not dead, she wanted to shout down at them. My sons are dead, but my father lives. Damn you all, and he is your lord still. 
Catelyn finds Hoster in deep sleep with Vyman hanging over him. The maester tells Catelyn that he gave Hoster Dreamwine a while back to ease the pain and that Hoster won't know that Catelyn is here. Catelyn, though, doesn't care. Hoster might be closer to death than life, but he was more alive than her sons. I mean, just Jesus, Mom. Vyman asks if Catelyn wants a sleeping potion, but she doesn't. She can't sleep away her grief over Bran and Rickon. They deserve better. She's going to sit here with Hoster. Alone now with Hoster, she holds his pale hands and realizes that she has to let him go, but she can't. I, I have no one to talk with, Father, she told him. I, I pray, but the gods do not answer. Lightly, she kissed his hand. The skin was warm, blue veins branching like rivers beneath the pale, translucent skin. Outside, the great rivers flow, the red fork of the temple stone, and they would flow forever, but not so the rivers in her father's hand. Too soon, that current would grow still. Last night, I dreamed of that time Lys and I got lost while riding back from Seaguard. Do, do you remember? That strange fall came up and we fell behind the rest of the party. Everything was gray and I could not see a foot past the, no the nose of my horse. We lost the road. The branches of the trees were like long, skinny arms reaching out to grab us as we passed. Lysa started to cry, but when I shouted, the fog seemed to swallow the sound. But Peter knew where we were, and he rode back and found us. But there's no one to find me now, is there? This time, I have to find our own way. It is hard. So hard. I keep remembering the stark words. Winter has come, Father. For me. For me. Rob must fight the Greyjoys now as well as the Lannisters. And for what? For a gold hat and an iron chair? Surely the land has bled enough. I want my girls back. I want Rob to lay down his sword and pick some homely daughter of Walter Frey to make him happy and give him sons. I want Bran and Rickon back. I want... Catelyn hung her head. I, I want... She said once more, and then her words were gone. By then, the candle was also gone, and the moonlight was coming in. She listens to her father breathe, and Ryman the Rhymer singing sadly. Catelyn has no idea when the singing actually ended, but Brienne arrives and says that midnight has come, and Brienne and Catelyn must do her duty. She arrives at the dungeon, sees that the jailer is a small man and also a bit drunk. He squints and says that no one sees Jamie without a written order from Lord Edmure. Catelyn, who, by the way, is very smart, retorts that Edmure isn't the lord, and this asshole better open the fucking gate or answer to Lord Hoster. Warden fuck up then says, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. He opens the gate, and Catelyn tells him to leave them be. Brienne is to stay outside and be at Catelyn's beck and call. Catelyn shouldered the side, the heavy wood and iron door, and stepped into foul darkness. This was the bowels of River Run, and smelled the part. Old straw crackled underfoot. The walls were discolored with patches of nitrate. Through the stone, she could hear the faint rush of the tumblestone. The lamplight revealed a pail overflowing with feces in one corner and a huddled shape in another. The flagon of wine stood beside the door untouched. So much for that ploy. I'd be thankful the jailer didn't drink it himself, I suppose. Jamie raised his hands to cover his face, the chains around his wrist clanking. Lady Stark, he said in a voice hoarse with his use. I fear I am in no condition to receive you. Catelyn tells Jamie to look at him, and he does, complaining about the light hurting his eyes first. Catelyn notices that Jamie is shagged on up with long hair and a long beard, but Cat still saw the power and beauty of the man there. Catelyn asks why Jamie hasn't drunk the wine she sent, and Jamie's like, uh, because why would you start sending me wine? Maybe because you wanted to fucking poison me? Catelyn says the wine is not poison. She just, you know, she could have just beheaded him. Yeah, but that would not look like an accident, Jamie's counters back. Poison, though, that would look like an accident. Jamie then says he'd offer Catelyn a chair, but Edmure hadn't given him one. Catelyn's fine standing, though. Is she? Jamie wonders. 
You look terrible, I, I must say. The perhaps it is just the light in here. He was fettered at wrist and ankle, each cuff chained to the other so he could neither stand nor lie comfortably. The ankle chairs were bolted to the wall. Are, are my bracelets heavy enough for you? Or did you come to add a few more? I'll rattle them prettily if you like. You brought this on yourself, Catlett reminded him. We granted you the comfort of a tower cell befitting your birth and station, and you repaid us by trying to escape. Jamie's all like 90s high school bad boy ever. Just wait. Someday this badass here is going to show Catlin the cells under Castle Rock. They're super fucking metal. Catlin realizes that Jamie is not cowed and she tries to shame him by saying that he should be more courteous. Oh, he should? Why? Does Catlin want to fuck him maybe? He might be up for it if she got nude and drunk. And why are my pits starting to moisten as I'm writing the synopsis? Well, whatever. Catelyn stared down at him in revulsion. Was there ever a man as beautiful or as vile as this one? If you said that in my son's hearing, he would kill you for it. Now, Rob might kill Jamie if he was wearing irons, but he's so super scared to face Jamie in single combat. But Catelyn says that Rob is no fool. Besides, Jamie didn't issue any challenges when he had an army at his back. Jamie, flipping up the collar of his leather jacket, asks whether the historical kings of winter hid behind their bombs. But Catelyn is so done with this shit, she wants to know stuff. But why would Jamie tell Catelyn anything? To save his life, according to Catelyn. But Jamie doesn't fear death. You should. Your crimes will have earned you a place of torment in the deepest of the seven hells of the concert chests. Oh yeah, what gods are those, Lady Catelyn? The trees your husband prayed to? How well did they serve him when my sister took his head off? Jamie gave a chuckle. If there are gods, why is the world so full of pain and justice? Because of men like you, Catelyn said. <laughs> there are no men like me. There's only me. Well, that is a top five Jamie quote here. And also the conclusion of the synopsis for part one of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7. Just a great introduction to this amazing chapter. What did you think, sir? I have three favorite chapters in A Clash of Kings. Danny 4, The House of the Undying. Davos 2, The Shadow Baby Under Storm's End. And this one, Catelyn 7. I love them all for different reasons. Danny 4 has the most memorable imagery and distinctive structure. Davos 2 covers the most ground, accomplished in both breadth and depth. Catelyn 7 is a triumph of prose, every word chosen to sink into your soul. The psychology of our POV character is imprinted so effectively on the page that as readers, we feel like these could be our own thoughts, our own words. I was rereading some reviews by Pauline Kael, semi-benevolent queen of American film criticism, and came across this description of what she loved about 1970s new Hollywood filmmakers like Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman, and Brian De Palma. Within disreputable B-movie genres, they found, quote, the place where genre is transcended and what we're moved by is an artist's vision. And that applies perfectly to this chapter within the high fantasy context of the series. If you're not invested in the genre trappings for their own sake, this is where they fall away. No shadow babies here, no prophecies. Just pure drama. The artist's vision. Mm, that's so well said, man. And I think, like, th for me, this chapter, this masterpiece of a storyline in A Clash of Kings is unforgettable in its cruel yet honest, is that the right word? Portrayal of a woman who th that the world has decided to keep kicking when she's already down. And the hits are not going to stop coming for Catelyn. I don't think that the word joy is the right word, but the joy of this particular Catelyn chapter is that it concludes where it started, at River Run with many of the same themes. 
The contrast is that Catelyn one had the matriarch of the Stark clan feeling the danger was coiling around her family with Tywin Lannister and the twin armies at Harrenhal and the Golden Tooth as the greatest dangers and Theon as the much lesser danger. But here, the Lannisters seem defanged. I mean, Edmure has won a great victory, right, at the Fords? Maybe, kind of. And Theon and Tywin is defeated, and everyone is cheering for Edmure's victory. But in the end, Catelyn was right about the danger coiling around her family, but she just misjudged where her greatest danger lay. It was Theon and the Ironborn who had murdered Bran and Rickon. It ended up being the lesser threat, but it was still the threat she saw. It's just so heartbreaking that this is the end of Catelyn's storyline, that it was still the lesser danger, yet it was still the danger that she foresaw from all along. I'm so glad you brought up the structure of Catelyn's story in The Clash of Kings and how this kind of feels like a bookend with the first chapter. As I may have mentioned a handful of times, Catelyn is my favorite POV character in The Clash of Kings. Why is that? Because each chapter stands alone, yet taken together, they form a journey from dawn to dusk. Brightest day to blackest night. Seven chapters, like the seven gods she worshipped in the center of her arc in this book, each reflecting the whole, rays in an unfolding rainbow. Indeed, throughout the book, that journey has been captured in colors. A Clash of Kings is where George really steps up the imagery, using every visual trick he knows to enrich and express the transformations at work. Nowhere is that more true than in Catalan chapters, in which George has sculpted the imagery into a beautiful representation of narrative structure. We started with the morning light, glimmering off of Rob's sword as he nervously adjusted his fresh crown. Dawn, new beginnings, coming of age. White light breaks out into all colors when you reflect it through a prism, and so we transition from the morning light of Catalan 1 in this book to the rainbow itself. The reds, oranges, and pinks of Renly's sprawling camp in Catalan 2. Then came the harsh yellows of Stannis' crown and banner in Catalan 3, the deep greens of Renly's tent and armor in Catalan 4, and the steadily darkening blues and purples of her return to River Run in Catalan 5 and 6. Not only is all this artistry satisfying in its own regard, it makes us understand what is happening inside our POV character. At every turn, the imagery reflects her own fall, from nervous optimism to growing dread. She starts the book hopeful that Rob can succeed, and terrified that he won't. She feels like the only unhappy person in the eternal party of Renly's camp. In her mind, Stannis comes to stand in for her fear that it's all going to go wrong. These optimistic young kings with their armies will come to naught. On the other side of the rainbow, opposite the bright dawn light with which it began waits the night. We took a brief plunge into the abyss in the middle of Catelyn's arc in this book with the killer shadow in Renly's tent. She returned to daylight and light water blues at River Run, but her fear was growing, reflected in the envoy's corpses, her father's state, and Ned's bones. If we are winning, she thought to herself at the end of her previous chapter, that about to slip into evening chapter of Catelyn 6, why am I so afraid? That perfectly sums up the tone of her story in this book. Amidst summer nights, the dawn light giving birth to a burst of rainbow colors, she alone knows it will all end, it must all end, in darkness and death. Now we have arrived at the end of the rainbow. Catelyn 7 is my favorite chapter of hers in this book, in part because it's so well written on its own terms, but also because of the cumulative effect of that structure. It's all been leading to this, a chapter literally set at midnight. 
This is the long night of the soul that's been coming for Catalan all along, hidden beneath the dizzying layers of color, but steadily approaching the surface. Summer is literally dead, or so it appears, and winter has come. In the Storm of Swords, Catalan and her family will continue to fall further into tragedy, and so the rainbow color scheme gives way to grim shades of black, white, and gray. The only pop of color in Catalan's A Storm of Swords arc comes at the end, blood red. Mm. And the red wedding is then going to be replaced by gray as Catelyn takes upon gray clothing to wear as Lady Stoneheart. In the show, there's there's a really great line from the show, I don't think it's in the books, where Jamie says that Barristan Selmy was a painter who only painted in red. But George R.R. R. Martin is a painter of words who uses all the colors of the spectrum for Catelyn's arc in A Clash of Kings. It's kind of a bittersweet feeling. No, it actually really is a bittersweet feeling coming to the end of Catelyn Stark's chapters in A Clash of Kings. She is the first point of view character from this book to have a final chapter in the book. I mean, Davos is next in just a few chapters, but still, Catelyn being the first one to be done is just kind of bittersweet, sad. For us, the end of our long journey through A Clash of Kings is also nearing an end. The, the horizon is just about there for us. It feels especially bittersweet here, given how every Catelyn chapter in this book is a stone-cold triumph of plot, mood, and theme. But the aspect of Catelyn Stark's journey in A Clash of Kings that really stands out as we come to the end of her journey in A Clash of Kings is the narrative prison by which George engages us in Catelyn's story, namely tragedy. Back in Brand Six, I talked about. So I, back to Brand Six, I talked about the, st- the structure of tragedy and how it unfolded for the cause of the Starks. In, Cla- in Catelyn's A Clash of Kings arc, we find not the tragic structure of an entire cause, such as House Stark, but one broken woman who is experiencing the final part of Freytag's structure of tragedy, catastrophe. The spot where the protagonist is worse off at the end of the narrative than the beginning. In Shakespearean tragedy, this usually results in the death of the protagonist. In a bit of a subversion, so to speak, of Shakespeare, George opts not for Catelyn to die at the end of her A Clash of Kings arc. Instead, she becomes a gray lady before she even takes on the robes of Lady Stoneheart, almost kind of like a dead woman walking from here on out, in part, not in whole as we're going to explore in A Storm of Swords. She's not just drifting into the grave, but she is very much laden down with this idea that that death is coming very soon for her and for her son and for everyone that she cares about, those who are left anyways. And it all starts here with the fake news that she has no sons but Rob. As has been the case throughout the book, Catelyn begins her final chapter feeling cut off from her fellow humans, alone in a crowd. The alienation now runs very deep. George represents Catelyn's state of mind in her surroundings. The Great Hall of River Run sat only for two. They're surrounded by ghosts and memories filling up the empty spaces. Catelyn and Brienne can hear the sounds of revelry, life and love and laughter, but it is all at a distance, held fast behind thick walls. These walls are both literal and metaphorical. Remember, Catelyn described Brienne's isolation as being like castle walls around her, and now, here they both are. Happiness for Catelyn is a thing she can perceive but no longer experience. It is kept away from her behind walls she cannot climb. Everything that meant anything to her has been leached away, vanishing like the daylight into darkness over the course of her story, never to return. The songs and stories are hateful to her now, and so she wishes she could silence them altogether. In the depths of despair, 
You can, no longer, you can no longer even conceive of joining the happy in their celebration. All you can do is wallow in pain and wait to die. It's as though Catalan is eating in a grave or a mausoleum, dark, thick walls shutting out life as the torches go out and the shadows close in. Those deep shadows, as George describes them, drape the walls like black banners, avatars of doom like the shadow she saw slit Renly's throat. All the furious beauty of the banners backing Renly and Edmure earlier in A Clash of Kings give way to the banner of the Lord of Night, the cut to black that marks death. We go so far and no further. Death is the end of our POV, the terminus of knowledge and empathy, light and love. All motion stills, the long day closes. Here in the domain of death, all the signifiers of life turn to dust. The wine tastes sour in Catalan's mouth. The sound of Brienne eating is like nails on a chalkboard. In previous chapters, Catalan's depression was something she could keep at bay in her dreams, in the back of her thoughts. Now she has no such luxury. It dominates this chapter. Yeah, it really, really does. And and I was thinking about that, the, the torches guttering out that kind of brought back the memory of the house of the undying as Danny is moving through and the torches are guttering out one by one behind her as some sort of monster comes up uh, from behind Danny. And, and one of the things I talked about there was that the monster was Danny's own dark desires herself, her own des- desires to become this terrible monstrous eras targaryen like figure and that's reaching out for her and i and i think here we can see that the torches guttering out might be symbolizing catelyn's stoneheart identity reaching up for her and reaching up through death in order to pull her back from the person that she is in order to become the lady of of, of vengeance that the, the gray lady it's also neat that that catelyn describes the wine as quote thin and sour while jamie calls the wine that catelyn sends him later in the chapter sour and vile you know it's it's kind of like life has lost its flavor its joy and that, that goes for both catelyn and jamie for different reasons obviously i mean catelyn's family's all dead save for rob and sansa she believes they're all dead jamie has lost a battle and is down in the dark by himself so again like it's a little different degrees so to speak in terms of why they feel that life has gone sour and vile or thin and sour in, in catelyn's case but they do have a shared sense of loss and they do find a familiarity with themselves and their own state of beings here before they actually encounter each other towards the end of this chapter because ultimately they are alone in their own minds And moment to moment, heartbeat to heartbeat, Catelyn is drowning in her own mind. It's not even quite suicidal ideation, because that would involve doing something. Catelyn instead feels like she is already dead. And it it can't help but remind me of Hamlet. How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it. Ah, fie. "'Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this. And George is writing his best Shakespearean pastiche here. "'I am become a sour woman,' Catalan thought. "'I take no joy in mead nor meat, and song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. I am a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There is an empty place within me where my heart was once.'" This is such a grand, sweeping statement of the tragic mindset. Humanity hollowed out from within of everything that makes life worthwhile. It builds beautifully on the melancholy Catalan monologues we discussed before. Like Hamlet and other tragic protagonists, Catalan is no longer able to make sense of the border between the world and her own mind. 
and so political espionage is made inextricable from her psychological impulses. Throughout her conversation with Jamie, she doggedly insists that human suffering is because of bad individuals. Here at the beginning of the chapter, she thinks to herself that the fault is in her, not her stars. Hmm. And, and where, and I think like where other Tullys have come up short, Catelyn has always really actually embodied the Tully words, duty, honor, family. But playing by the rules of her house, living within the confines of what, she, what it means to be a noble lady of a great house has not gained her what she wanted. Her duty to the Stark cause and going to Renly at Bitterbridge have resulted in her witnessing Renly's horrific murder and not, not, and not securing peace between the Baratheon brothers themselves or the alliance between the Baratheon brothers and the Starks. And she, because it's Catelyn, places the onus of blame on herself for failing Rob politically as she thinks back in Catelyn 3. I have failed Rob as I failed Ned. Meanwhile, Sansa is a captive, Arya is missing, Ned is obviously dead, and she believes that Bran and Rickon are both dead as well. Given that Catelyn insisted that Ned and the girls go south to King's Landing back in the Game of Thrones, and given that Catelyn made the conscious decision to stay with Rob rather than return to Winterfell, Catelyn feels responsible for not safeguarding her family. Now, in Catelyn's defense, she made all of these decisions not to endanger her family. In other words, she's not some mustache-trolling victim the YouTubers would have you believe. <laughs> she, she was afraid for King Robert in sending Ned south, and believed that not sending Arya and Sansa would endanger Ned and raise suspicions. Catelyn believed that Rob needed her more in his coming war in the Riverlands, and believed that Bran and Rickon were more safe up in distant Winterfell than Rob was in fighting an actual war against Tywin Lannister. All of these decisions were made with the best of intentions by someone who cares, and all of those decisions blew up in her face. It's not. It's difficult not to emotionally agree with Catelyn that it was her fault, even as objectively it, it really wasn't. She meant for the best, but she got hit by a bus driven by George R. R. Martin that Stephen Atwell was talking about in our first episode on Catelyn 1 for A Clash of Kings. But now that Catelyn has failed her family and her duty, whence the honor portion of her family motto? Stay tuned to the end of the chapter. Absolutely. I mean, but, you know, this is a clash of kings, of course, not a storm of swords. So Catelyn still possesses a, a flicker of hope that her heart can be restored. And ultimately, though, that just leads her further into tragedy. As you're saying, all these decisions have blown up in, in her face. But, you know, it's, she can't make no decisions. So, what, you know, whatever, whatever she whatever she does, even with the best of intentions, it, 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 she ends up feeling like she's trapped by fate. Her worst nightmares have come true. She was afraid for good reason, it turns out. Bran and Rickon have been killed by Theon, their heads on spikes above Winterfell. I don't have children. I can't pretend to understand the pain that Catelyn would be experiencing at, at this moment. All I can imagine is that it's, it's like a screaming in your ears that never goes away. The, the obscenity of this. Her sweet boys who she brought into the world, watched them grow like miracles from the gods, have been butchered and displayed like prizes on their family home. She will never see them again. All her hopes to get back to them have come to nothing, and it somehow gets worse. They were killed not by their hated foes, the Lannisters, but by Theon, who sat at Catelyn's own table. Catelyn never exactly warmed to Theon, of course. We saw that at the beginning of the book. That does nothing to shake the horror. It's such an intimate betrayal. I fed you, trusted you with the people I loved most in the world, my children, and you murdered them? Hmm. It's a reality so horrible that Catelyn would have preferred to die before living through it. This is hell. This is ultimate suffering, the heart on fire. All Catelyn can think to do is unplug herself from her last connections to humanity. 
The people cheering outside, she tells herself not to blame them, which means at some level she is blaming them. Mm-hmm. How dare they cheer? How dare they be happy? Don't they know her children are dead? She envies them for their lack of tragedy. They don't have the memories of her children, memories which once were sweet, but now cut into her. The only cure for grief, I think, is community. But community can feel like an insult to fresh grief. They don't know my pain. They can't know. It's exactly what Brienne said to Catelyn about Renly after his death. I am alone in my suffering. Catelyn tried to reach out to Brienne, but now Catelyn has been plunged back into grief. Worse even than the loss of Ned, because these were children. They had so many years ahead of them. Hence the memory of Rickon trying to be like his older brothers. Catelyn can only wonder, oh, who would he have been? And you know that, as I was talking about the mini-show that'll be out for our our, our uh, High Lords and Ladies and Small Council patrons tomorrow. That was a, a moment that really struck with me on on this re-re because my, my youngest daughter is the same way as, as Brickon is. Like she follows around my older daughter, Livy, and, and tries to be like her. Julia tries to talk like her and say the same things that he does. And just like having Catelyn remember that about Brickon and knowing that Rickon's, that she believes that Rickon's head is mounted on the walls of Winterfell is just fucking devastating, man. I mean, George himself has said he's never had children, and he's talked about how he considers the characters of his story as children. I feel here, even though Catelyn and Rob are not dead yet, he is channeling his own future emotional pain of killing his own characters, Catelyn and Rob, through Catelyn herself dealing with the grief. In comprehending Catelyn's grief as a mother, and much like we do in the real world when dealing with grief and tragedy, I think George reaches for something familiar to help him kind of explain his way through the grief. Uh, Catelyn's statement of, I have no son but Rob, that reminds me so strongly of how Theoden talks about the death of his own son, Theodred, in the Two Towers. Behold, I go forth, and it seems like, and it seems like to be my last writing, said Theoden. I have no child. Theodred, my son is slain. In that context, Theoden was taught, was sadly declaring that Eomer is his heir after, Theod- after Theodred's death. Here, Catelyn is signaling that she has that all she has left to live for is her remaining living children, Rob and Sansa. And even though she she wants that human connection so badly, she needs them back. Grief makes other people just kind of a nightmare. Brienne's presence has become intolerable for Catelyn. She tries subtly to make Brienne leave her alone and go join the party, but Brienne does not pick up on it because Brienne is no happier than her. Brienne, too, is going through the motions of being alive, eating as though it's a monotonous task. She, too, is lost in grief. They are alone together. I love, however, that George doesn't write this scene as Catelyn intentionally seeking solace with Brienne. You know, sharing pain is is rarely so clean, especially between people who still don't know each other that well. Instead, as with Jaime at Harrenhal... Catelyn unburdens herself to Brienne at an almost unconscious level, as she says she doesn't know why she's saying it. She just does. The horrible revelation cannot stay inside her. George dwells at length here on the difference between a thought and a spoken word, what it means to know something unimaginably hideous has happened, and what it means to say it out loud. As Catelyn thinks, it only seems real when she says it. By making another person know that Bran and Rickon are dead, it becomes public fact. That takes on an extra ironic layer when you come back on reread knowing that they're not dead. What matters is what people believe. She has said it and made it true. When it was just a thought, there was still a chance the gods would intervene on her behalf. They don't. 
There is a spiritual dimension to this, as with her conversations with Hoster and Jamie later in the chapter. Catelyn is in the role of a confessor. She is confessing hatred and a desire for death. Throughout Catelyn's story, she gradually loses faith in the cultural political system to which she has given her life. In this moment, she feels like it was all for nothing. Brienne reaches out to Catelyn, but her fingers stop just short. Catelyn was the one who reached out to give what comfort a touch could give what comfort a touch could give to Brienne in Catelyn 5, but Brienne rejected that comfort. Now, Brienne pulls back from comforting Catelyn lest she provoke that same rejection. This is a small perfect illustration of the ways we cut ourselves off from each other. Even with the best of intentions, we wind up isolated, and isolation is what this chapter is about, maybe more than anything else. Catelyn is alone. Brienne is alone. Hoster is alone. Jamie is alone. We enter this world alone and we leave it the same way. Catelyn has always known this on an abstract level, but it's very different to live through it. It is on this basis that she rejects the faith of her fathers. Brienne says there are no words. She's right. Language falters before this kind of pain. So Brienne falls back on the conventional wisdom, the reassuring mantras with which we try to hold back the night. Your sons are with the gods now. This kind of courtesy never kept Brienne safe. It only disguised cruelty and contempt from others. Sansa is beginning to realize that the conventional wisdom lied to her, and so too is Catelyn, just on a different generational level. Sansa's deconstruction is rooted in her coming of age, childhood transitioning into adolescence. Catelyn's deconstruction takes place on the other side of the looking glass, adulthood mourning a lost childhood. She takes no comfort in imagining her sons with the gods. What kind of gods would take them away from her? The gods are supposed to, to deliver justice, keeping the world in balance. How can this be justice? Yeah, these are great questions, and they're also similar to the same questions that Sansa asked of Sir Dantos just a few chapters back, which shows Sansa's having many of the same personality traits as her mother. And in another similarity, Sansa goes from posing theodicy, a new word I just found out recently, uh, to relying back on the gods to punish Jaime for his sins, similar to how Sansa does that with Sandra Clegane. As with Sansa, Catelyn is in, is in any port in a storm territory, willing to scorn the gods for their injustice or rely on them to be, to be just when dealing with Jaime's soul. That to me is just like oozing humanity, man. And you know, Catelyn and Sansa never make the wry observation that, ah, well, I was being inconsistent before, and now I'm thinking completely differently here. They just flow from angrily decrying the gods to hoping they turn out just to Sandra Clegane and Jamie Lannister in the end. In my opinion, who among us has not had that thing where we're not like, we just flow from one thought pattern to another thought pattern, especially dealing with the amount of tragedy and trauma that Catelyn has? Yeah, it's, it's very relatable. It's almost uh, universal, I'm tempted to say. And Catelyn's story has been leading her to this revelation from the start. Her first chapter, her first POV chapter in the series, found her in the Winterfell Godswood, a living temple to gods she does not worship nor understand. She was delivering word of death to her beloved husband, who would die by the end of the book. Those dark wings and dark words have been haunting her ever since, taking new and worse forms at every step. Bran fell. Hoster is dying. Ned is dead. Catelyn Stark was the avatar of the conventional wisdom, the person to whom the world made sense. Now it no longer does. The smiling faces of the gods watching over her in childhood were replaced by the unknowable, unnamed gods of the north. The chalk faces of the seven were all she had left, and then the shadows came for them. 
Now the gods are dead. They may never have been there at all, as far as Catalan is concerned. There was no foundation, only a shadow on a wall. She looks down at the scars on her hands. They stand in for all her experiences and the marks they have made on her, all her struggles to keep herself and her family alive. Why did I bother? What was it for? Bran would have died that day in Winterfell, as would have Catelyn, if not for Summer. Catelyn thought the wolves would keep her children safe, like the gods who seemed to have sent the wolves. But both failed her. And now her daughters have no wolves. Brienne is thrown off by that sudden change in topic. George is capturing, I think, well what it's like to talk to someone in the throes of grief. Their train of thought is no longer on a linear track. It spider webs out wildly in all directions, and you just try to keep up. On reread, though, we can see a clear connecting thread. Because Catalan's daughters don't have wolves, they are even more vulnerable than her sons, and so she must do anything, even free Jamie, to get them back. Catalan is subconsciously talking herself into crossing the line. Even as George holds your attention with the emotional prose, he is setting the groundwork for the decision Catalan makes just after this chapter ends. Catalan allows herself to remember her daughters. I say allows because these memories bear with them pain, all the more intense now. She frames Sansa and Arya as perfectly matched opposites, as they often are in the story. Sansa colored in the lines, Arya colored everywhere but in the lines. Sansa was the perfect lady, hooked on the stories and songs. Arya collected bruises instead of flowers. Sansa's air caught the light. Arya had a bird's nest up there. Catelyn despaired of ever making a lady out of her. Is Catelyn showing preference for one child over the other? I don't think so. I mean, she still speaks fondly of Arya saying whatever came into her head, and when she finally admits that Arya is probably dead, it hurts her so much. Instead, I think this is Catelyn seeing her contradictory self, reflected in her girls. San Sansa shows me what I thought life would be. Arya shows me what life actually is. In A Feast for Crows, the girls each choose half their mother's name as a pseudonym. Arya becomes Cat. Sansa becomes Elaine. Even on different continents, they are two parts of a whole embodied by their mother. Catelyn thinks Sansa will be more beautiful than she ever was. I think this reflects her desire to roll back time to the naivete of childhood before age set in and she realized nothing was ever quite like it was in the songs. These memories are of life lived, and now Catelyn is in the domain of death. She wants her enemies dead, all of them, but she knows that won't bring her girls back. Again, George is setting us up for Catelyn freeing Jamie. Catelyn managed to save Brienne's life amidst the unfolding chaos at Storm's End. How can she pluck her daughters from death's grip? Brienne suggests that Cersei might take pity when she hears, empathizing on the basis of her own children. Catelyn briefly empathized with Cersei down in the Stormlands Sept, realizing that Cersei was fighting to keep her children alive, no matter who their father might be. Catelyn dismisses Brienne's, quote, sweet innocence. But Catelyn is the one who will trust the Lannisters here, actually. Nihilism leads her right back around to naivete. It's all she's left with. In the moment, though, Catelyn is lost in bloodlust. She imagines Rob taking Theon's head. Not something Rob would take pleasure in. Catelyn says that Ned wouldn't either. But Catelyn, she feels like she would take pleasure in it. And this, I think, is a potential fault line in Ned's worldview. 
The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword, he told Bran at the beginning of the story, because if you have a headsman do it, you'll become detached from death. But what about the opposite problem? What if you do the deed yourself, and you like the taste of it? Sandor said that killing is the sweetest thing there is. Gregor taught him that. Catelyn, too, has unlearned her old way and is learning a new one. Once more, she shifts topics, saying that she has sent him wine. Brienne is flummoxed. Does she mean Rob or Theon, the men we were talking about? No. Catelyn meant Jamie, And so her plan goes into motion. This is how Catelyn means to navigate the domain of death. And so she tells Brienne to meet her, of course, at midnight. Because all hours are midnight to her. This perfectly sums up this chapter's place within Catelyn's story in A Clash of Kings. She started it off in the daylight with a new king and new possibilities, and now she descends into a windowless dungeon for permanent midnight. The Forsaken takes place at the same time, the hour of despair. Mm. And again, we're seeing the bitter payoff to Catelyn's journey in A Clash of Kings. Where once the colors of the rainbow were painted across her journey, she's now embracing the darkness, the lack of color and light. But there's, there's another piece, too, uh, that George embeds into Catelyn's story, Seasons. Catelyn's story in A Game of Thrones begins at the end of summer with her visiting Ned at the Winterfell Godswood. Her story in A Clash of Kings opens with word that the White Raven has arrived announced at the end of summer. A wealth of rustling leaves still clung to the branches of the trees, all ignorant of the world, of the word the White Raven had brought to River Run a fortnight past. Autumn had come. The conclave had declared, but the gods had not seen fit to tell the winds and woods as yet. For that, Catelyn was duly grateful. Autumn was always a fearful time with the specter of winter looming ahead. Then, Catelyn was on to Renly in the Nights of Summer and she warned Mathis Rowan that summer would not last. Winter was coming for these Nights of Summer. But as she's about to tell Hoster, winter has come for her. Winter in Westeros is one where darkness falls over the land, and this winter is one that will bring the long night with it. The symbolism thus, I, th I think, is that Catelyn is about to march into her own long night to embrace her winter. But before she faces Jamie in the dark, she first decides to visit one whose winter is even more proximate than hers. Before confronting Jamie, Catelyn pays another visit to her father. His slow decay stands in for everything else unraveling in her life. As she walks to his chambers, she once more hears everyone else partying. They're cheering Edmure specifically as the young lord of the castle. Catelyn wants to yell at them that Hoster isn't dead yet. He's still the lord of Riverrun. And I understand the raw, crushing weight of that emotion. Catelyn's need to keep her role model from being swept under the rug. Even more than Hoster's death itself, what haunts Catelyn is the loss of his dignity. How dare his loyal servants act like he's already dead. But really, this party is a wake for Hoster. It's a New Orleans funeral celebrating that the Tullys will survive under the next generation. This isn't about the man. This is about the myth, the family, the collective identity. Only Catelyn cannot participate in that. She can't even grieve for her father because he's not dead yet. It is her sons she grieves for, and she feels alone in that. Yet when she sees Hoster... She, sh she thinks that it feels as though he is as dead as her children, only technically alive. Catelyn is caught bleeding on the barbed wire border between life and death. The generations on either side of her are crumbling into dust. Her responsibility to carry forth her father's wisdom and pass it on to the next generation has fallen apart around her, even as he slips away. 
Hoster is lost now in his dreams, even more cut off from the world of the living than Catalan. She can only speak past him, but it'll have to do. Catalan needs confession. She's rubbing herself raw on the inside and it needs to come out because it feels like it's literally killing her. She rejects Dreamwine from the Maester, saying Bran and Rickon deserve better from her. Catelyn, like so many, seeks some kind of authenticity in her suffering. <laughs> she wants to stay in control of herself. She doesn't want her grief ripped away from her. She wants to consciously choose to let go of the dead. Yet she can't. She clings to her father's fingers, trying to pull him out of the grave, reverse the night to daytime, and make him the man he used to be. I mean, this is the heart of Catelyn Stark's character. She can't let go and she has to hold on because what is the meaning of life if you can't save your family from the grave? Back, and this is something that we saw back in A Game of Thrones at Bran's sickbed when she refused to get up to help Rob and he was begging her, like, please, come help me. I don't know what to, how to rule. I'm 14 fucking years old and Rickon is around clinging to my legs. And why was that that she couldn't leave Bran's side? She wanted to get up to him, but Bran was still holding her hand and she could not move. She could not move then because she was holding Bran's hand and her fingers would not seem to unbend from Hoster's here. It's not that Catelyn thinks that she has some sort of magical touch that will bring back the back those from death's door, but it speaks to the emotion underpinning the Starks and Tullys as a family unit. Remember Bran and Rob back from a Game of Thrones Bran 4 after Rob told Bran about the adventures they would go on? He heard his brother sob. The room was so dark he could not see the tears on Rob's face, so he reached out and found his hand, their fingers twined together. That, that's the same desire that Catelyn wants, that, that in the midst of loss, that there's a human connection center on her family there. And even beyond the grave, Catelyn still has this mentality. As she tells Merit Frey in the A Storm of Swords epilogue, she's searching for Sandra Clegane and Arya at the end of A Storm of Swords as Stoneheart, looking for her daughter one last time to connect to those who are always, always slipping away. Oh, those are great connections. That's exactly what's going on throughout her whole story is that, that reaching for what can't be reached and trying to cross that border. And so naturally here, Catelyn comes unstuck in time, drifting back into her past. George makes the fog of memory literal. Catelyn recalls becoming lost in the fog with Lysa as a teenager, rescued by a young Peter Baelish. As with Catelyn's memories of her kids, this memory has been tainted by time and death. She barely averted disaster back then, a young woman thinking herself immortal. Now she's older. She suffers and knows better. Now she is lost in a metaphorical fog, a fog that seems to arise from within her as much as from external obstacles, and she can't find her way home. She feels permanently lost, exiled from her own life. As rereaders, we can see a terrible irony at work. Lysa and Littlefinger are largely responsible for this fog surrounding Catelyn. They've gone from her companion and savior, respectively, to her secret tormentors. Her own family, her own pack, has turned on her and left her alone with her dead children, and her dying father. So Catelyn finds herself reaching not for the Tully words, but the Stark words, the words of her adopted family. Winter is coming. Winter has come. For me. For me. How bittersweet it is that this is the moment in which Catelyn fully, finally, becomes a Stark. It took losing Winterfell and her boys to do it. This is what it means to be a Stark. Losing your fellow Starks, howling in grief, 
even in victory, as we see at the end of season eight, they are all alone. The past is gone, corrupted by a hellish present, and when Catalan lifts her eyes to the horizon, all she sees coming is more fire and blood. Her last son, her small red squalling baby boy Rob, must fight a two-front war now. So many more sons will die, and for what? A crown? A throne? Now, one could point out that Rob is not really fighting a war for the Iron Throne, but for the ideology of Northern Independence. As with Catalan telling the Baratheon bros, the realm bleeds and no one lifts a sword to defend it but my son, she is speaking to the larger sense of hopelessness at work, the cycles of violence begetting violence, not just her own side's Cassus belly. Regardless of which cause you're fighting for, it's hard to disagree with Catalan's central assertion. Surely the land has bled enough. Arya's chapters alone are testament to that. Whatever side wins will be left with a devastated countryside and a reduced, radicalized population. Yet, as with Catalan's plea for peace at Rob's crowning, the realization that war is hell is not enough to stop war from happening. The personal and political keep slipping into each other in Catalan's chapters. She wants the war to end to put her family back together, which is relatable for the reader, but meaningless to any other power broker in-universe. So all she can do is sit and wait, as she has so many times before, perched on the periphery of power, in the corner of every portrait. And just like two chapters hence, we'll hear through Sansa a song that I think describes Catelyn's mental state here in this chapter so strongly. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know a better day. Gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kinder way. Catelyn is giving voice to tens of thousands of mothers across Westeros. What are our sons fighting for? Why are our daughters endangered by all the carnage? And, and I think the fandom gets so caught up in the forest of who has the right to the Iron Throne? Should Rob bent the knee to Stannis? What are the strategies of warfare to get the outcome for our side? And we miss the individual trees, the people who are caught in the crossfire, the teenagers and young men given sharpened stakes and told to march into battle as Maribel talks about in A Feast for Crows, the civilians in a random Riverlands village who just happen to be in the way of Gregor Clegane or Amory Lorch. Now, like you, man, I think I'm of the mind that politics and warfare are sometimes necessary to defend people, and that political legitimacy and armed resistance to political tyranny are key ingredients thereof. And while Catelyn thinks that Rob must fight the Greyjoys now as well as the Lannisters for a gold hat and an iron chair, it's not simply about the Iron Throne and the Crown. It's not even simply about the Northern Independence, so to speak. The Lannisters and Greyjoys are engaging in casual atrocity and endanger people, and those acts are derived from political illegitimacy and regal tyranny. But again, as I was saying before, when it comes to whether Catelyn was objectively right that she is to blame for the loss of her children, it's hard not to emotionally agree with Catelyn that she's put her family on the line, endangered them for things, that the world is placing things as more valuable than people. Her husband, her sons, her daughters. It's too much, as Jamie will tell her. She feels so strongly all that she lacks. She wants Rob to marry some fray girl and give her grandchildren, new life to heal the wounds of death. She wants Arya and Sansa back, another clue to where all this sorrow is leading us at the end of the chapter. And of course, she wants Bran and Rickon back. She wants to return the dead to life. One of the oldest human wishes, the ultimate defiance of the laws of nature, 
And so, the core of so many of our myths and legends, coming back from the dead. As I've said before, the zombie army beyond the wall is in part a metaphor for all these characters haunted by those they've lost, wanting to bring them back in some form. Tyrion with Tysha, Ned with Lyanna, John Connington with Rhaegar, and so on. We saw it maybe most memorably with Danny and Drogo at the climax of Book 1, producing political chaos and shadows like those haunting Catelyn. Catelyn, however, lacks magic, so she can't even make a failed attempt to return her dead to her. As she says, all she can do is want. Catelyn is, uh, George is drawing from grand traditions in tragedy and melodrama here. Catelyn wants all these specific things, but she also is wanting. A spiritual, emotional state of being incomplete. A once full heart left empty. I want is as profound a statement of being a human as I am. I think George made King Arthur's mother a POV character to capture this feeling. <laughs> Catelyn is finally out of words, out of narrative, out of memories, out of ways to make the world the way it's supposed to be, out of life. The moonlight makes bars across her father's face, as George writes it. The wheel of time as a cage. The lord of night come to claim Hoster as his light goes out inside. Catelyn hears him struggling for breath, interspersed with the rush of the water outside. The natural world runs on forever, but we do not. And then Catelyn hears it, wafting up through the window, Ryman to the rhymer singing, I loved a maid as red as autumn with sunset in her hair. In other words, the only way to live is to love in defiance of death. Everyone has sunset in their hair. Autumn comes for us all, foreshadowing winter. Everyone dies. But first we'll live. Make children and sing to them. Catelyn has hit rock bottom and finds music waiting for her there. A kernel of story. A song, like the one we're reading, A Song of Ice and Fire. Does it solve her problems? Nope. Any more than A Song of Ice and Fire can solve ours. But while the song is playing, Catelyn loses track of the time. She loses track of everything. Until Brienne steps in the room, all she does is listen to the song. For a little while, she does not want. <laughs> George hopes he can do the same thing for us with his own story. But midnight, like winter, will always come, and Catelyn must return to the domain of death to get what she wants. I, I love that the song comes in here. I, I love this song because I think it's really poetic and George does a great job with it. But I, I also love it for, for a different reason, as I'll talk about here in a second. As you were saying before, Catelyn believes that she has to embrace her grief and not turn aside from living her own grief authentically. But now that Catelyn has fully unburdened her soul to Father Hoster, both as her dad and as allusion to George's Catholic upbringing and going to confession to bear one's soul to a priest, she can now allow herself time. And she has fully unburdened herself, giving full voice to everything that she wants until she even runs out of words. I want, I want. She can't come up with any words thereafter. Now Catelyn can rest her weary mind, having gained the momentary absolution that a full confession brings. In a way, Ryman's song and the slanting moonlight that she observes playing across Hoster's face, it, it works as the dream wine that Vyman was offering her to distract mm. her from grief. But the relief is, is only temporary as grief is sometimes we'll go in waves and we'll kind of come in and out and you'll feel it strongly and then you won't feel it at all at some points 
For Catelyn, though, in this moment in the plot, she cannot leave her grief completely because she still has the Kingslayer to face. Yes. And in order to get access to Jamie's cell, Catelyn must once more confront the fact that everyone in Riverrun is treating Edmure like he's already in charge and Hoster is already dead. Edmure left orders that no one be allowed to see Jamie. But Catelyn is still able to trade on her father's name and reputation for now. How bitter it is that in order to see Jamie, she must threaten his jailer with dragging him before Hoster, as though Hoster would know what's happening. These authorities, these institutions, they're falling away. And that, of course, is the subject of her conversation with Jamie, the deconstruction of all of the things in which we used to believe. We'll be getting into the meat of this conversation next week. Suffice to say here that George frames this scene as central to his story. The setting speaks to the significance. We're in a dungeon, but we're also in a cave, a symbolic place of death and rebirth, like Bloodraven's cave. As Catelyn says, they are in the bowels of Riverrun. The imagery is reminiscent of Ned's last chapter in the Black Cells below the Red Keep. Ned had in mind Robert's saying, The king eats and the hand takes the shit. That's where we are in this scene, the shit left over from the Game of Thrones. Which is gross, but there's also a kernel of possibility in there. Manure makes for good fertilizer, after all. Could something grow down here? That dynamic is relevant for both our characters in this scene. Catelyn has arrived at midnight, but is trying to rekindle hope, the dawn. Jaime, meanwhile, is explicitly framed as reborn in A Storm of Swords, emerging from the womb of this cave and this harrowing gauntlet of a conversation. When you reach rock bottom, as both of these people have in different ways, you are at your most ready to be remade, for better, worse, or both. Catelyn can still hear the river running, even down here. Even here, in the valley of the shadow of death, life persists stubbornly for its own sake. In this context, we are reintroduced to Jaime Lannister, the Dark Knight. A character so different from the one in A Game of Thrones that he may as well be a different person. <laughs> the transformation motif extends to the writing process itself. Jamie in book one, as we said when going through those chapters, still bore the marks of the original pitch letter, in which he was basically a supervillain. He somehow killed his way onto the Iron Throne for no reason but avarice and pride, a pure nugget of Lannister aggression. The guy Ned describes to Robert, the guy we see fling Bran from a window and order Ned's men murdered with a smile, he's that guy, I think, for the most part. But somewhere along the way, Jamie changed. He changed as a character, and so therefore, he had to be made to evolve as a person. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's clear to me by the time George is writing Catelyn 7 that he was planning for Jamie to become a point-of-view character in A Storm of Swords. But this was not always the case. It wasn't that George was always planning for Jamie to emerge in book three as, as a point of view character. As he told a fan in 2003, when this fan asked him, did you know from the beginning that you would flesh Jamie out and make him a point of view? George replied, I knew I would flesh him out, but no, I did not know he would be a point of view. As to why Jamie was elevated to point of view status, here's, his, here's George's perspective from 2005. With regard to characterization and point of view, George R. R. Martin said that for any character who is a point of view character, he has to find something that he and readers can sympathize with even if the character in question does reprehensible things. He said there is always something he can find, or if not, then it would just wouldn't, won't be a POV character. Gregor Kilgain, for example, could never be a point of view character. But Jamie Lannister can be, despite can be despite his bad actions, because there's more to Jamie than that. Now, 
considering the timing of when Jamie becomes a point of view character in George's mind, you have to imagine that he became one as George began his interrogation of what it meant to be a knight and the vows they take and also what those vows mean as seen very strongly in The Hedge Knight where knighthood and knightly vows are a big part of how Dunk the Lunk is able to handle the tourney at Ashford Meadows and of course how conflicting vows lead to conflicting value sets among these different knights who are there on the tourney grounds. Moreover, Jamie has not been seen in the flesh since the Game of Thrones Catelyn 10 when he was taken prisoner by Rob and as noted in this chapter, it's been over a year since he was truly free. So in my opinion, and opinions are going to vary on this, but in my opinion, it becomes less of this is a different character from book one and more of a this character has changed from book one to book two. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think that George manages to pull off that transformation really skillfully and make it seem like it's organic, something that's happened in 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 narrative time as well as just in his writing process. And the arrogance we loved to hate in book one with Jamie is still there. Don't get me wrong. But only as the surface layer of what is now a tattered, Byronic soul. Instead of just embodying the worst impulses of power in this world, and maybe ours too, he now bears witness to and explains those bitter truths. That might sound familiar because it's exactly the same role Sandor Clegane plays, albeit with a different backstory and class status. Upon reread, the parallels between this conversation and the Sansa-Sandor conversation in Sansa 4 a few weeks back are so clear. You have the Stark-slash-Tully redhead lady, with her courtesies, decaying in the face of grief and fear, and then you have the broken man telling her that her courtesies were always lies designed to cover up fire and blood. I'm tempted to say that the different direction George took with Jamie's character was in part inspired by Sandor, if only in tone, and as you say, I'm part of that overall interrogation of knighthood process he was doing with the Hedge Knight around this time. Regardless, Jamie is now a voice for George's weary despair with the promise of a better world embodied in fantasy, as well as his dread at the mounting costs of such promises. And that's the core of A Song of Ice and Fire right there. Jamie is now almost literally taking center stage in the story, speaking to its central themes in a way that emotionally resonates with the reader. Here in this scene, he functions as a dramatic scalpel, cutting through history and projections and pain, trying to arrive at the truth. He doesn't get all the way there, of course, but the structure of the scene is of a painful yet necessary confession, as with the earlier scenes in the chapter. George sets that up with the untouched wine. Jamie will not be so easy to ply as Cleo's fray. He starts off sober, more of a challenge for Catelyn. George's physical description of Jamie emphasizes just how much time it's been since we've seen him. This is his only appearance in A Clash of Kings. He's been allowed no razor, and so his hair grows long and unwashed, a mockery of Lannister pride and their lion imagery. It's like, you know, an overgrown mane that looks just, you know, too <laughs> gross and disgusting instead of fierce. When he shaves himself on the outside, it's only one of many signs of his rebirth. His clothes are rotting, his face is pale. All the emblems of power that made him so intimidating in Book 1 have been taken away from him, as Aaron's possessions are taken away from him in The Forsaken. But just as Aaron clings to a sliver of dignity in the form of his faith, Catelyn must acknowledge that there is still power and beauty in Jaime. This is a signal from George that the reader needs to start paying more attention to Jamie now. It's an all-that-is-gold-does-not-glitter moment. And when he speaks, his voice is hoarse. It's been so long since he used it that, 
Again, this might as well be the first time. His opening words are sarcastic, of course, but unlike before, there are hints at depths at depths beneath the surface. Jamie is now witty, saying things like, oh, you know, harder to pretend my head simply fell off, and he says, uh, such sudden generosity seemed somewhat suspect, which is marvelous <laughs> alliteration. Jamie's yeah. a wordsmith now, like Joshua York in Fever Dream. As with Sansa and Sandor, Jamie is trying to expose uh, public, social, collective hypocrisy. He speaks the language of courtesy sarcastically, as though it applies. He subtly draws attention to how wretched his environment is, not to plea for a better sell, but to provoke Catelyn into defending her values. Jaime hates being judged by the Starks and Tullys. He considers them to be insufferable know-it-alls, blinding themselves to their own failures. That is in large part due to what happened with the Mad King, of course, as we will get into next week. But it also flares up right away in this conversation as Catelyn harangues Jamie for trying to escape while Jamie tries to undercut her position. And he does a really good job of undercutting her position every single time that Catelyn has a line of dialogue. Jamie has a ready response that's just instantly there. You wouldn't believe that he had been in prison for a year and really not talking to anyone, uh, except for that he comes across as as if he's just picked up right where he left off. And, and I think like your standard connection to Jamie is spot on because Jamie is sick of all the hypocrisy among the people who call him Kingslayer behind his back. But where Sandra Clegane is sick of how knights are hoisted up as shining exemplars of society when he knows better, Jamie is sick of the name calling. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is Jamie's vanity that people call him names behind his back. But the greater part is how the current ruling class climbed onto power atop his accomplishment, all while scorning the method he used to allow those people to get there. Of course, Jamie didn't kill Aerys Targaryen to avenge Brandon Stark or support Robert and his rebels, as we're going to talk about next week. But he's done with all these people who think he's trash because of what he did and yet think themselves any better than him as they advance through his one deed the one that he thinks is the thing that he should be praised for that i think is the genesis of his hatred for the know-it-all tullys and starks who consider themselves his moral betters chief among those people who benefited from jamie's actions is one dead stark yes that's a great way of putting it jamie thinks you know you you, you just want to enjoy the fruits of my labor, but just divorce yourself from the action itself. Yep. And yet here, he immediately zeroes in on Ned. Ah, this is Catelyn's weak spot, he thinks. When Jamie asks if Catelyn has come down here to fuck him, he's being crude and juvenile for a purpose. He wants to rattle her as a grieving widow. Catelyn's reaction is complicated. Her words are scornful and imperious, but on the inside, she is impressed by Jamie's stamina. And she also can't seem to keep herself from noticing how attractive he still very much is. <laughs> you know, Catelyn's a human like anyone else. She's kind of taken aback by that famous Lannister beauty. On reread, we have to keep in mind how this conversation ends. So we can see what an impressive job George does of building us to that point without giving it away. Catelyn is testing Jaime to see if she can trust him with his mission. As such, she says she has come to interrogate him. Jamie, naturally asks why he should tell her anything. As with Egret and John, he doesn't seem to have any incentive. Catelyn then threatens his life. You'll give me information or I'll have you killed. Jamie doesn't call her bluff and say, no, you won't have me killed. Instead, he asserts that he doesn't fear death. There is no more defiant expression of human will than that. Even in defeat and imprisonment, Jamie keeps up the pretense that his swordsmanship and his last name allow him to live free of consequences. How do you break that down? 
How do you drag him back to Earth? By invoking a higher power. The gods who will judge Jaime justly, as Catalan says. This is the exact same argument Sansa made to Sandor. You should fear death in the battle, because after you die, the gods will punish you for your sins. And Jaime has the exact same comeback. What gods? You mean the gods who are currently allowing all this sinning to continue unabated? How convenient that they only intercede afterward, in the invisible part of the universe from which no one can report back. This cuts deeper than Reddit atheism, however. This is about human suffering and the need to make sense of it, and how that need confronts an indifferent universe. Again, like Sandor, Jamie draws us back to that open emotional wound lingering from book one, the execution of Ned Stark. There was a godly man, a just man, a serious man. Where were his gods when the Lannisters came for his head? Nowhere, because they're not real. We project them into a void that we cannot conceptually handle. Jamie asks the question, the big burning question every religion and philosophy has to try and answer. If there is someone watching over us, why is this world so full of misery? Why have we been forsaken? Catalan responds with the answer that most religions and philosophies ultimately settle on in one form or another, because people are awful. It's not the father and the smith and the warrior who made Jamie Lannister this way. Jamie Lannister made Jamie Lannister this way. He has to own the consequences of his actions. There is unquestionable truth to this. Catharsis in a man who has done terrible things in full view of the narrative camera, being told that he has made the world a worse place. But the idea that the world is bad just because of bad individuals is extremely limited. Yes, Gregors and Ramses exist, but most of the people burning Westeros down are common soldiers and broken men. Yes, Danny can and should topple individual slavers, but she quickly realizes that this is not anywhere near good enough on its own. Injustice exists due to the context surrounding individual impulses, the larger forces by which those impulses are disseminated and discussed. Structures matter, not just individuals. Injustice exists within systems, and flourishes when it is seen as the excess of some bad individuals. Much as I sympathize with Catelyn in many ways, and love her rich, immersive POV, this is a fatal blind spot in her worldview. Bad things are what the bad people do. Her hosts at the Red Wedding give them bread and salt, and that's not the behavior of the bad people. It's not just that the structures she believes in aren't worthy of her belief, it's that those structures can be hijacked and turned against her by people who don't actually believe in them. The force of that revelation, combined with the loss of all her children, or so she thinks, transforms her into Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, and, and you know, in a, in a way, Catelyn's journey from here into the end of her natural life and beyond, that parallels Jamie's early life to becoming the Kingslayer. You got authoritarian father figures who are not above war crimes, check. Ideals of knighthood marriage that were inculcated at an early age, check. Believing in a power that their roles as Kingsguard motherhood confer upon them, check. And in the end, both Catelyn and Jamie wanted a happy life, and they sought that through the apex of conventional living. As Lady Stark, one of the most powerful women in Westeros, and as Sir Jamie Lannister, a Knight of the King's Guard, the most glorious order of knights in Westeros. 
Those ideals were all brought up short for both Jamie and Catelyn, because Jamie ended up serving as a monster for a king who took on the dishonorable name of Kingslayer in order to save innocents from murder, as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords. And at chapter's end, Catelyn will break her own honor to sit to set Jamie free. What I'm saying is that these two are not so dis- are not so dissimilar as we might think otherwise. And yeah, Jamie, of course, is not here to deliver a, an overall systemic critique of Catelyn's worldview. Instead, as usual, he takes it all personally. Catelyn said that this world is forsaken because of men like Jamie. But Jamie says there are no men like him. There is only him. With that line, George throws down the gauntlet for the new Jamie. It is a perfect statement of character, revealing everything we need to know. Jamie thinks that line is an expression of confidence. I'm peerless. I'm not some part of some team of supervillains. No, I'm singular. I'm unique, the best. (laughs) But what he accidentally just revealed is that he is deeply, profoundly lonely. There is no one like him. There's only him. He's all alone. Turns out that when you sacrifice your humanity to be the best, it's not worth it anymore. Danny says it best in A Storm of Swords. It's lonely at the top. Jamie set his heart on fire and is left alone with the ashes. That's quite a step forward from A Game of Thrones in which he seemed to never have had a heart in the first place. From this admission forward, Jamie takes tentative steps to be less lonely. It's buried under years of delusion and denial, so it takes time. More to the point, it takes Brienne, and realizing that Cersei never actually loved him. If there is no one like Jaime, he has no incentive to do better. If he has something in common with other people, he has that incentive. We see that with Brienne. Unconsciously, Jaime starts to seek out her approval. Jaime's admission of loneliness is what you might call a breakthrough... Except that, again, he doesn't seem to realize what he just said. (laughs) When he becomes a POV, his thoughts, words, and actions often end up at right angles to each other as he sorts out who he wants to be now. George had a difficult task ahead of him, transforming Jamie Lannister. But he started that process here about as perfectly as he possibly could have. You know, I've always been struck by your excellent observation that Sandra Clegane is a romantic who is figuratively and literally burned by that romanticism. And I think the same applies for Sir Jamie as well. When we get into his headspace and his POV chapters in A Storm of Swords, we start to see the boy that he was. He really actually truly wanted not to be this supervillain that's standing alone on top of the world, but he wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane. But as he looks back on his life towards the end of A Storm of Swords, he realizes that he's been the smiling knight. As we're going to explore in intense depth come A Storm of Swords, Jamie will try to be more like Arthur Dane. But whether he'll actually be like Sir Arthur Dane, well, that's that's still up for some debate. As we'll talk about throughout A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Rose and A Dance of Dragons and The Wind's Winter. But those seeds for Jamie's magical story in A Storm of Swords are here in this dungeon in A Clash of Kings. The disappointed romantic who turns to bitter sarcasm to hide his hurting on the inside. And because I recently was reading some George stuff for something else, I happened across this George quote from uh, 2000 when he was interviewed and asked about his own personal romanticism. 
in which George says, I was always intensely romantic, even when I was too young to understand what that meant. But romanticism has its dark side, as any as any romantic soon discovers, which is where the melancholy comes in, I suppose. I don't know if this is a matter of artistic influences so much as it is of temperament, but there's always been something in a twilight that moves me, and a sunset speaks to me in a way that no sunrise ever has. I can't see this George quote and not see Jamie of House Lannister all over and how George probably wrote Jamie's chapters in Sandra Clegane's secondary perspective in the books through it. That melancholy simmers under the surface of Jamie and finally releases in the bathhouse in Heron Hall. But that couldn't be released without another melancholy and disappointing romantic in the form of Catelyn Stark. So here, two sworn enemies, they're not going to find friendship or kinship with, the, with one another here in the dungeon. Instead, they riddle at each other in the dark, almost, I want to say, to dark mirrors of each other. And I think that's a brilliant touch that we have, two disappointed romantics interacting with one another. And of course, that is where we're going to pick up next week when we pick up on A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7 Part 2. But before we get to that, we have, of course, foreshadowing and groundwork. Take it away, sir. Stoneheart foreshadowing is all over the place in this chapter. There is an empty place within me where my heart was once. And, of course, Catelyn confessing that she would take joy in killing, unlike Ned. Paralleling what Sansa said about Ned to Sandor and Sansa for he wouldn't enjoy the killing, but Catelyn has gotten to the point, or will get to the point, where she will very much enjoy that killing. This is one of those things where I'm really curious when we get to the Winds of Winter and we're have a lot of stone material. George talked about that there's going to be a lot of stone material, and it's one of the reasons, one of the things he advocated most vociferously for including in, in Game of Thrones, but it wasn't included. The thing I'm curious about is whether there is actually any joy in what Stoneheart is doing, because when we see Stoneheart in Brienne's chapters at the end of a storm, at the end of a Feast for Crows, we see someone who is actually not joyful. That is very, that is what she's cradling Rob's crown at that one point and in Brienne's uh, eighth chapter from a Feast for Crows. That to me indicates someone who's not taking joy in all the hangings that she's committing in the Riverlands. But I am curious whether we'll get a wider perspective when we get mm. to that and in, in, in the Winds Winter we get more Jamie and Brienne chapters. That's a good question. But we'll yeah. see. Uh, Catelyn also mentions that Sir Roderick is gathering forces at Castle Serban to take retake Winterfell. Uh, we're going to hear a lot more about this army from Asha in Theon 5 in two weeks. And we're going to see them assembled and then, of course, promptly wiped out by Ramsay in Theon 6 chapter in A Clash of Kings. Uh Man, so Roderick just gets like done so dirty by by George and, and Ramsay and, and Theon, I guess, so to speak. But but especially by George at, at the end of a Clash of Kings. Yeah, that 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 slow buildup is is great because you think the Northmen are coming to save the day. That's the hope, and then Georgia just just so brutally takes that away. Just another another domino fall in the ongoing tragedy of House Spark. Uh, House Spark, that's what they should call it. <laughs> and speaking of the ongoing tragedy of House Stark. Uh, that, that takes us into our, our theory discussion portion. And we were, we were, you know, knocking around a couple of ideas for what we should do here. And then we, we struck on something that isn't strictly within the bounds of the chapter itself, but is still relevant. Right. I mean, this chapter features the Riverlanders celebrating news that Robb Stark has taken the crag out in the Westerlands. It's kind of like total the passing. Ah, Edmure has won against Tywin and Robb has taken the crag. Yay, everybody's celebrating drinking that nut brown ale, which sounds mighty tasty at this moment. Uh, this minor event turns out not to be minor and has major ramifications for Robb, Catelyn, and the end state of the Northern War of Independence. Robb Stark was actually wounded in the battle. He was comforted by Jane Westerling, the daughter of Lord Gowan Westerling, and Rob ended up marrying Jane Westerling. Catelyn is not going to find out about this until A, a Storm of Swords, Catelyn 2, 
But given that we already have a major Edmure discussion already planned for that chapter, we figured we'd take some time here to talk about the ethics of Rob Stark marrying Jane Westerling. Yes. So this is, again, something that does not happen within this chapter, but it happens in <laughs> kind of parallel to this chapter. So let's let's uh, set up the timeline of it a bit. When Catelyn got back to Riverrun and Catelyn 5, it had been uh, some weeks since the Battle of Foxcross. Rob had already moved on. He had taken the castle of Ashmark, belonging to the Marbrands, and had. And, and it was reported he was marching on the castle of the Crag, the the uh, fortress of the Westerlings. Now here in Catalan Seven, we have received reports that Rob has indeed taken the Crag. We later learned that he took an arrow wound in the process and recovered from it in Jane Westerling's bed. As Rob explains it in A Storm of Sores, Jane comforted him there following the deaths of Bran and Rickon. And yes, that comfort, of course, took the form of sex. Sir Roderick's message about Bran and Rickon has only just arrived at River Run in this chapter, and the timeline doesn't really make sense here. That that message must have somehow found yeah. Rob at the same time, if not sooner, because two days after this chapter, in and around a Storm of Swords, Catelyn won. He Rob has already married Jane, and everyone at River Run besides Catelyn knows about it. So I think George had to tighten up the timeline to make this drama <laughs> kind of work. But yeah, yeah. Rob, Rob apparently at, basically finds out about it at the same time, roughly. Right. As as Steve Abel's talked about really well, George doesn't George don't math apparently back in in Catlin one. George is also really sometimes not so so good on on his timelines. But yes, that's primarily what's what's happening with the timeline where we get into how this marriage actually took place. And and I think the, the timing is important because George, even though he's not necessarily good with like the dates, he is finding out about there are different events that are being structured around the same time. Like the Blackwater is happening as Catelyn, the Battle of Blackwater is happening as Catelyn and Jamie are talking under the Dungeon of River Run as the same time that the Westerlings, are, that Jane Westerling is comforting Rob Stark. Now, I think an interesting timeline piece of it all is whether Sybil Spicer has reached out to Tywin Lannister at this point. And does that indicate that the Battle of Blackwater is completed in Tywin Lannister's favor and that he's sitting in the Red Keep? That part is unclear, but at least at this point, Rob has betted Jane and has likely married her as well. And that leads us into Rob's rationale for why he decided to marry Jane Westerling. Of course, as, as Jamie says, is a pretty girl, but probably not worth a kingdom. Rob offers multiple explanations for marrying Jane. First up, of course, is romantic love. When he's uh, gradually worming his way towards the confession to Catelyn by talking about what you did with Jamie. What you did, I know you did for love. For Arya and Sansa, and that of grief for Bran and Rickon. Love's not always wise, I've learned. It can lead us to great folly, but we follow our hearts wherever they take us. Later on, I know what it is to love so greatly you can think of nothing else. And then finally, when he's admitted what happened, I took her castle and she took my heart. Is this entirely accurate? I have no doubt that Rob cares for Jane, you know, quite a bit, but I also think Rob might be putting on a front to explain his actions. He is spinning a romantic narrative like the songs and stories Sansa used to cherish. In truth, grief led him to take comfort in Jane's arms, not love. You know, she she was the person who was there. If it had been someone else, I think Rob might have fallen to their arms too. It was something he needed. So then why marry her in the morning? Rob says she would have lost her honor if he hadn't. Well, honor in whose eyes? Like Jane's Westerland peers? They would hate her way more for joining Rob as a queen, I think, than sleeping with him once. Like, I think if Rob just moved on, Sibel would be able to spin this as, oh, he forced her, my, my poor daughter, and I think she could probably still work, work a marriage out of it. She's con Jane is in considerable more danger this way. What happens if Rob loses the war? As such, I agree with Stephen Atwell, who made a really, I think, persuasive case, that what really happened here was that Rob married Jane to avoid fathering a bastard, like his father supposedly did. 
Rob saw how Catelyn felt about John, and saw John suffering for it. He couldn't bear the thought of leaving another little pariah behind him. It's not so much Jane's honor that Rob had in mind, nor even his own. It was his father's soiled honor and how it was passed on to John. The irony being, of course, that Ned didn't actually father a <laughs> bastard, and pretending John was his was the best way of keeping him safe. But Rob doesn't know any of that, and so he takes a big old cannonball dive into tragedy. Yeah, and, and I agree with Stephen Atwell's interpretation of why Rob married Jane Westerling. I think he, I think there's a couple of factors of why he doesn't come out and say that directly, one of them being that Catelyn does not want to really hear about Jon Snow at any point, and which is, uh, if Rob is actually believing this, this will come out to be uh, devastatingly true when they're on the uh, by the old, by old Stones, and, and Rob brings up naming Jon as his heir, and Catelyn freaks out. Um, but, I, but I think also, too, like he doesn't want to bring additional dishonor to his own father by reminding people that he, that he fathered a bastard. And uh, I, I think, you know, that, that makes Rob's rationale much more sympathetic than simply that he did not want to dishonor Jane Westerling because... This, this idea of dishonoring a woman by sleeping with her before marriage is not, I mean, there's just, there's debate about this in the fandom, but this is not necessarily something that's like, how do, how do I put this correctly? I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but like, it's like the, the whole, I'm thinking about like the Ashara Dane stuff, like dishonor Ashara Dane, you know, um, whether that actually occurred or not, whether that's Barris and Selmy's kind of like perspective, but otherwise it seems like there is not as much stake put in the virginity of, of the, of the, of the, of the woman coming into a marriage. And so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flailing here a little bit, but that's okay. No, I think, I think they could get around that. I think, you know, obviously yeah. it wouldn't, it would hurt Jane's marriage prospects, but I think, I think Rob is, is somewhat overstating the case. and was like, her honor would just be gone for, it's like, you know, Rob, this married to a conquering independent King is not exactly the most, you know, orthodox right. of social situations either. So, you know, what's, what's really, what was, what was really driving you here? And I, yeah. yeah and I, and I think too, like you have the example of of Lysa Tully, who mm-hmm. you know, was horrifically basically sold off to to John Aaron for right. marriage because she was soiled goods and had uh, the ability to to bear a son, as Hoster apparently revealed to to John Aaron, and that became the selling point for for the uh, the, the Tullys to enter into Robert's rebellion. That's so a good I, point. I think yeah, the possibilities are there exactly. Right. So I mean, you could say like the Westerlings, if they really really wanted to, and if Rob, if he was really really thinking about it, and he had as a you know, his father's men around him at the same time as well could be like, actually, you know, you could probably just drive on, man. And it's, it's fine. Like her honor's not going to be at stake. It might even be a selling point as, as your, uh, as Aunt Lysa found out back in the day. But uh, that, that does take us though to the consequences of this uh, whole thing. And oh boy, that was some, that this did not go well for the it's Star Cross, did it? This is bad news, bad things, bad consequences <laughs> from this. Yeah. First of all, Rob loses the phrase who eventually murder all of his men. Bad consequences. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the Westerlings bring barely any swords to defend against that sort of thing. Thirdly, Sabelle uses abortifacents on Jane and cuts a deal with Tywin behind Rob's back. And fourthly, Jane herself winds up suffering immensely, both physically and emotionally, and now Lady Stoneheart is probably going to execute her. Obviously, we'll have more to say on this as we go through A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows, but yeah, man, struggling to find a good thing that comes out of this marriage, unfortunately. Not really much at all at least he doesn't have to marry a fray but that ends up being silver lining downfall the silver lining a really bad silver lining i think um it's it's um yeah i'm trying to find any silver lining whatsoever i mean i i think uh i mean jane seems personally loyal to to rob i mean in a way that 
any other potential bride for him probably would not have been. That that's that's a good thing, and she and Rob seems to like her. That's also a good thing. Those those are the really silver linings, but the political consequences are, are immense, and that takes us to like talking about the the nature of political marriage. I mean, when when you're a sovereign, as many sovereigns have found over over time in Westeros and in the real world, you don't marry for love primarily. And if you do marry for love, you find situations like Aegon the Fifth's sons, who all sure. basically just screwed his father's plans of of reform, especially small folk oriented reform. And I think Rob is. And Rob found the same thing happening with Jane Westerling, and that didn't net him any positive cons- any positive consequences. And pretty much, it was all negative for for Rob and his political cause because he's not marrying. You're not marrying Rob Stark, Rob as Rob the person. You're marrying the last name. You're marrying the Stark name. You're marrying the 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 honorific in front of his name, the, the King in the North. So that that's it's it's all bad consequences, and of course, it shatters the already fragile alliance with the phrase, which of course has gotten worse and worse as, as we're progressing through a clash of kings in Harrenhal, and of course, Tywin Lannister. At some point thereafter, is starting to make his overtures to um, to the phrase and, and to the Boltons in order to sway them over to his side in order to commit the red wedding. So yeah, it's it's really bad consequences all around. But I think ultimately, I think we should probably talk about what we think about this marriage and what it might mean maybe for the future of the story so yeah in terms of whether rob made the right call here uh, you know i think i think he made the wrong decision really both for himself and for her you know a flurry of caveats to go with that rob didn't know the battle of blackwater would lead to a resurgence lannister cause putting jane in grave danger as his queen rob also didn't know that sabelle would make a deal with tywin behind his back and guarantee that he wouldn't father an heir Rob also didn't know that Ramsay would bushwhack Sir Roderick at Winterfell, preventing Stark loyalists from retaking the North. Rob also also didn't know that Roose would send <laughs> other Stark loyalists to die at Duskendale before joining the phrase and betraying Rob at the Twins. There are just so many factors feeding into the Red Wedding, and they really all have to be there. Because Lord Walder is a notorious coward, and he's not going knives out on the Young Wolf and the Great John unless he has an overwhelming advantage while doing so. In a different story where those factors are changed, Rob breaking his marriage pact would register as a minor setback, not a fatal mistake. That being said, it's clear in the moment that this is going to have negative consequences. And I think Rob mishandles the phrase in the aftermath. Rob might not be able to see the Blackwater coming, but he knows the Ironborn are invading the North. And even if Stannis wipes out the Lannisters for him, Stannis might decide to fight Rob next. It is unwise to shed soldiers right now. It's particularly unwise to spurn the River Lords, whose lands were overrun by Westerlands soldiers, in favor of a Westerlands maid. Politically, that is toxic. <laughs> Jane, in a more personal level, Jane is going to feel far more culturally out of place than Catelyn ever did. And her children, if she you know, had any, would likely be viewed with suspicion by many as, you know, half Westerlands and, you know, traitors in the making, potentially. Honestly, I think it might be less cruel to leave Jane where she is. Although once Rob decided to sleep with her, there really was no non-cruel option. And if Rob is going all in on Queen Jane Westerling, he needs to be less naive about the backlash from the phrase. He knows Stevron was the only reasonable one. He heard Blackwalder threaten Jane's life, yet he still thinks they might be happy with Wendell Manderley and Crowfood Umber. And he still swallows everything Lame Lothar tells him in A Storm of Swords. He just takes it at face value, even though he knows he's given this horrible family reason to hate him. I don't think all this demonstrates youthful folly on Rob's part, however, so much as the dictates of generational expectation. 
Again, he was trying to make up for what he thought his father did, trying to prevent the pain both Catelyn and John felt from being passed on to the next generation. As Tyrion says in Storm of Swords, it all goes back and back, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. And I think that's what Rob is doing here, and the tragedy is, of course, he did not produce the next generation to take up his strings. And part of the reason why that didn't happen is because Cybul, Spicer specifically prevented that from occurring by mixing moon tea into uh, uh, into Jane's drink. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you all the way on everything you were talking about, about how this did really kind of hurt Rob's cause and how Rob was a little bit naive. At the same time, while understanding all that, I can understand Rob's decisions on a purely character level of Rob attempting to be like Ned Stark and doing the right hard thing, even if it came at his own political expense. I think that's, even if you take all the political negative connotations that came with this act, I think if you look at it from a purely character perspective and of Rob attempting to emulate Ned and trying to do even better than his father and not have another situation where he has and family members who are angry and upset at him and having a grudge for that last for decades. I understand it. And at the same time, I think that Rob made ultimately the wrong choice. And as I said before, it might have been, and as you were saying, it might have been better to just leave Jane behind. That might have been the less cruel option. And it might not have actually damned Jane Westerling and her eventual marriage prospects as well. But Rob, again, is a 16-year-old kid. He is a king in the North. He is a war leader. But he's still 16 years old. When I was 16 years old, I was a fucking bonehead. Mm-hmm. So Same. much, much less noble than Rob Stark was, too, in, in making these decisions. So I guess you can give Rob personal props on the personal level. On the political level, you just kind of, you know, tap the back of the front of your head and just say, oh, Rob, man. Oh, Rob. Oh, well. <sighs> Anyways, well, I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings, Catlin 7, Part 1. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you so much to everyone for watching this episode on our live streams. We are back in action and doing these every single week here, so tell a friend and let them know that we're here. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ASOIAF. You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIAF or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle. Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil. Lord Young of the Ghostwoods. Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil. 
Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, and Lady Carly. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you all so much. It's always a pleasure hearing Emmett read the, your names, and we really appreciate your support every single month. It means a lot to us. So thank you. So, join us next week for the second half of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7, in which, I mean, Jamie offers some <laughs> riddles in the dark. I want to oh, see wait. Catelyn in, in, in a hobbit clothing. I think she'd fit in just fine. But I think she'd do really well there. Yeah, I, I can see that for, for sure. Be a nice and retirement. Have, yeah, it'll be fun. And, of course, we have our debate coming up. Yes, you heard that right. The Amen brothers are going to be at each other's throats next week as we debate Catelyn Stark's decision to free Jamie Lannister in a desperate bid to save Sansa Stark. And of course, I will be right and Emmett will be more right, I'm assuming. We'll see. Exactly. We'll see how, how all good debates end. But yes, <laughs> we get an even even uh, juicier scene. The, 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 the full breadth of the Catelyn-Jamie dialogue we'll be covering next week, as well as discussing yeah, whether Catelyn made the right call letting Jamie go. So thank you so much for, for tuning in for this one, and we will see you for the next one.